pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? Hey, Thomas. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Cool. So I think I usually start off with just like a brief bio. Would you mind just like introducing yourself and saying a few words about who you are, what you do? Of course. Yeah, my name is Greta and I am a second year PhD student in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences here at MIT. And I mean, you are also in this department. Yep. And actually, I guess right now we're even working in the same lab. Yeah. Um, so here I'm working with uh, Dr. F. Fedorenko who studies uh, language in the brain. And uh, yeah, Thomas and I, we are, we are working on a project together. Yeah. So I guess if, uh, if we run out of uh, topics, then uh, yeah, yeah, we can, oh, we can just cover that. the to-do list uh, <laughs> yeah. or something. Um, but yeah, prior to coming um, here, um, I was in Denmark, where I lived since I was two years old. So I did my bachelor's and master's degrees in Copenhagen. And uh, I'm originally Lithuanian, uh, but my parents decided to move uh, from Lithuania to Denmark when I was yeah two years old. So I basically spent the majority of my um, childhood in Denmark. Cool, cool. Are you a Danish citizen or a Lithuanian citizen? Or is that so that's a gray zone. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I've been a Lithuanian citizen uh, until a few months ago, and now I have the Danish citizenship. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I have to give up the Lithuanian one oh, they don't uh, soon. They don't allow dual citizenship. Okay. Japan is also like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, cool. So you came to MIT a couple of years ago, right? And so how did you, I guess, um, decide to do a PhD? Did you always know you wanted to go to grad school and like study things at this like this graduate level? Or was that more of like a something that came to you maybe during a, a master's or later in your academic career? I think I always knew that I wanted to do research. Um, so my bachelor's degree is actually in molecular biomedicine. Oh, and wow. that's a degree that is like pretty new. It's like medical school, just without all the practical things. It's like a very research-based degree. And I think this degree was like started in like 2007 or something in, in Copenhagen. And it was like a very research-focused degree. And uh, it really attracted me, like the research aspect of it, you know, reading like original literature from like pretty much first semester. Um, so I definitely knew that I wanted to do research. I think I was pretty uncertain as to how and where and like which field. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I started out in molecular biomedicine. I think the field is really interesting, um, but I realized that I wasn't particularly passionate about doing all the wet lab work. And then in between my bachelor's and master's degrees, um, I think for some reason I had a summer where I didn't have that much to do. Probably like some plans fell through due to some <laughs> relationship or something. Um, I, I just remember like reading a lot that summer. Yeah. And I think this was around the time where Elon Musk and like Neuralink and like all this like mm -hmm. emerging neurotech started yeah. up. Um, and suddenly yeah, I was like, whoa, there's a different world out there, which is like related to biomedicine, but um, in terms of like in, in neuroscience um, and then merging with, you know, all these like computational methods that I didn't know much about then, yeah. which seemed very fascinating to me. Um, so when I started reading those like blog posts from like Wait But Why and like all these things, and I was yeah. like, yeah, there's a world out there that I really want to investigate and pursue. Cool, cool, yeah. So you, you took a kind of interesting, circuitous route to get, I guess, to where you are, because you started more like molecular, and there are people in our department who look at like the brain from a very molecular point of view, and as you said, like in, in the wet lab, and they're actually going in there like running experiments with mice and like dissecting brains and like looking at things under the microscope and having cultures in petri dishes and stuff, and I mean, I've like never stepped foot in a lab like that. I, all Everything I do is like 
on my laptop and can be done remotely. And I don't know, but the, now you're kind of in a in a lab in the department that's more of like a cognitive yes. focus, yeah. and you know, we're not dissecting any brains or anything. I have done everything that you just mentioned, looking at cell cultures, doing rodent uh, experiments. I've done all of them. I've, nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now I'm yet exactly as you say in a lab where we do uh, recordings from the human brain, um, and then mainly I do computational work. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah, so um, your lab, so the, as you mentioned, Fedorenko is like um, a scientist at MIT working on language in the brain. So what, what do you think is I don't, very, something very interesting about language specifically? Because it sounds like when you started off, you weren't like in a background with linguistics or like studying language as a, as, as a study itself, but kind of came into this. So is, is, I don't know, obviously it's a good fit for all the skills that you have and like studying it from both a brain science and a computational background, but I guess what it is, what is it about language that is really interesting in your opinion? I think it's an interesting, interesting system because it's like in the middle ground between a perceptual, like a sensory system, like vision and auditory, and then between like more higher level cognitive functions. So it's like kind of a, a nice and interesting mm -hmm. level to be working at. Um, and then, yeah, it's, there's really not that much that's known about how we actually do process language in the brain. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a fun field. And I think what makes it even more interesting to me is that over the last, I guess, like especially two years, now we have, you know, GPT-2, 3, uh, all these models that actually do language really, really well uh, in silico. And it just poses, there's just like a, so many interesting questions to ask. Now when we have these artificial systems that really do replicate a lot of aspects mm -hmm. of language, uh, language comprehension, then what are possible mechanisms that this actually could take place in the human brain? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah, that's super interesting because I mean I've always been kind of interested in language, but never really like uh, until very recently. I think like couldn't pin down like which approach I wanted to to take it from. Like I think I first got interested in language just from studying languages, you know, like and mm. that's kind of I think one route that a lot of people enter linguistics and and sort of the study of languages um, is being fascinated by different languages and things like that. Um, but you know, so I wasn't sure, do I want to like be a linguist or do I want to just like learn a lot of languages or do I want to, you know, be a neuroscientist or, or whatever. Um, and yeah, I don't know, like, so you, I assume like speak multiple languages and did, did, did like learning, I guess, different languages and sort of seeing the differences between them, did that play any role in wanting to study it or was it kind of separate from that? To be honest, no. Um, yeah, I grew up bilingual, uh, Lithuanian, Danish, learned English, French, later on. Um, but although I, to be honest, it always felt just very natural having like my own languages. So I don't think it really did play a role. Um, yeah, I think I got more interested in language from like the computational side of things. And then, you know, seeing that we can do these things in silico and then trying to ask like, how could that actually be implemented in, in the human brain? Yeah, that's, no, that's really cool. Yeah, because I think so. You mentioned a couple of these like recent models, like big language models like GPT-2 and 3, and you know, there's also like BERT, and, and basically a lot of these like transformer-based state-of-the-art language modeling architectures, which are being used in all sorts of different applications. It's really cool. You can just like go and download a model right now, and like anyone can just like experiment with it, and then all these different companies are trying to like, you know, come up with ways to productize it, and you know, very exciting, and all happened in the last like two, three years. Yeah, it's amazing, um, yeah. It's yeah. so accessible, it's out there, it's so easy, like, easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, to do. like <laughs> yeah. Hugging Face, right? Yeah, it's, it's just it's like, that's, for those yeah. who may not know, it's just like a, you can just go on HuggingFace.com and like download pretty much any one of these language models and like immediately start getting like predictions and, and things with it. But yeah, mm -hmm. so predictions actually an interesting uh, 
point to discuss because I think if I understand correctly, like one of the really interesting features of these models that and, and potentially what's going on in the human brain is the notion of prediction, right? Because the way these models are trained is based on like a language modeling objective where basically you have some context and you are just trying to predict like what's the next word or what's in, let's say it's a mass language modeling context then then it's like okay what's the missing word in a certain um, place in a sentence and it seems like just by taking large amounts of data and using this objective and predicting what's going to come you can kind of get these in many ways very human-like um, behaviors out of these models um, that... yeah and that didn't have to be the case right, right? right. which yeah. is like the interesting part because yeah. as you say like there's been a lot of like theorizing in like psycholinguistics that yeah, of course, like prediction is an important factor of us processing language, but no one like no one has to say that like these huge language models that actually do language pretty well. No one says that they should like match to the brain in any sense. Um, but yeah, we had a paper showing that you know the better a language model is at predicting the next word, so basically the more uh, yeah, just the better performance on these like language modeling tasks it has, um, the better it matches the human brain. And that's like maybe seems trivial when you're like there and like looking back at it but yeah. you know one could say that oh these models do these tasks well but it didn't have to be because you know they didn't have to do it in the same way as right. potentially the human right. brain so it's yeah uh, yeah so interesting thing. yeah just to follow up on that i mean that definitely like a super non-trivial thing that i think not enough people like sort of appreciate but like when you say it matches the human brain can you just explain a bit more about what you mean by mm -hmm. that or like how do you quantify like, okay, as you said, like the better something is at predicting the next word, the better this model is, then the better it matches the human brain. So how, how exactly do you probe that? Like, what are the sort of paradigms for looking into that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, a lot of people are like, oh, there's like brains and artificial neural networks are similar. But of course, there's a lot of uh, work behind the scenes going on there. Um, so when I say it, the, usually we talk about prediction. So this is a particular instantiation of understanding or like similarity that we frame as prediction. So basically what we do is that we can, you know, take one of these like large language models, then we can present a given sentence to this language model, and then we can say, all right, at given any stage in the model, if say within a transformer block, we can extract an embedding. So basically a representation, which is, you know, that internal model state. Um, and then we can take this representation, the embedding, and then say, all right, I, now I wanna use the embedding to predict how a particular region in the brain uh, respond to the same sentence. So I kind of have like two systems. One is the artificial system, the other one is the biological brain. I can present the same sentences to the biological system, the brain, as I do to the artificial system. And then by taking the embeddings from the artificial system, I can then try to predict how well um, we can actually quantify um, how, how well the brain activity is, is being predicted, basically. And that works. It's kind of like, it it's kind of shocking that that, yeah. you know, you take a bunch of basically like a big vector from inside of a model. Yep. And you predict. And you predict like brain state. Brain, and you, it's yeah. a, that's just like a linear decoding, basically. You, yeah, you, you, exactly. You it's have like some data mapping. Exactly. and then you create a basically a best fit linear mapping from yep. this like internal model states to human brain activations. Yes. And then you test it on a held out data set and it has like yeah. well above chance. Has, yeah. And that's I mean, kind of crazy like yeah that. i started taking it for granted as well yeah. yeah i had a conversation with someone like two weeks ago who was like wait you use these like nlp embeddings to predict brain activity that's crazy and i was like 
yeah, it, I guess it actually is. I just kind of forgot about it yeah, because I do it like, every day. Now right? it's like a normal part. It's, yeah, like, it, it's, uh, it's like an established paradigm, yeah. I guess, for, for like people in this subfield. But it's like, yeah, right. in like it's not like common knowledge. It's not obvious that that would work mm-hmm. at all by any means. So Yeah, so within the subfield of language, it's relatively new. Um, the, there's been some studies coming out like showing that you know we can pretty reliably predict based on these embeddings. Uh, but those studies have come out within like the last mainly two, three years. There's a couple earlier ones, but not really. Um, and this approach is, of course, as, as a lot of other uh, approaches in neuroscience borrowed from uh, vision. Mm. Um, so yeah, the first paper that actually showed that you can take like a convolutional neural network and use that to predict um, brain activity from a non-human primate was from, yeah, 2014 uh, by Yin and DiCarlo. Um, and, you know, there's also kind of a crazy thing that you can take a convolutional neural network and then use yeah. that internal state to predict a part of the, the visual ventral stream. And, yeah, now we're basically seeing the same in, in language processing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, like, a really... Because, I mean, the, the whole, like, visual ventral stream, like, analogy to, a like, basically a deep neural network is, like, a pretty... Obviously, there there's... It's, it's not, like, an exact one-to-one mapping, but, like... There are many ways in which that is like you know uh, sort of a parallel right and you know even in classes that, that we uh, i've taken in this department as like a first year grad student it's like yeah we've read those papers that you mentioned and yeah it's like really interesting to see like these sort of um, analogies between the computer architecture and like what's going on in the brain so like one of the really interesting things for vision is like the sort of hierarchical like emergence of abstraction as you kind of get deeper into the neural network right so like you know the maybe the v1 like the first part of your visual cortex is representing kind of more like low level features and then as you kind of go into um sufficiently like further down this stream then you get kind of higher levels of abstraction and they've kind of shown the same thing in these like deep neural networks for vision but it's it's like it's not at all obvious that that same thing would work for language or that you could like kind of also see parallels between the brain and these language neural networks so yeah i don't know like it's uh, i i don't know how to feel about it because yeah i mean you you don't you want to be careful with like oh this worked in one domain like doesn't mean it's going to work in another domain but also like yeah i, I think it's like a very fruitful thing that to, to study and can teach us a lot so i don't know like what do you do you think like what do you think are like the main open questions or like uh, maybe some of the low-hanging fruit in this mm. subfield that are like still interesting to to look into because i mean obviously yeah. there's a lot <laughs> there's, there's still a lot, lot. we don't yeah, know yeah. and yeah. you know these models you know there's they're kind of um still you know still under development and the, the exact architectures are somewhat arbitrary in the sense that they were just kind of designed at a certain point in time based on certain um, architectures and the sort of the distribution of training data and they're, they're by no means like you know the only possible way they could have developed so yeah I don't know do you have thoughts on next steps yeah, for, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean first I'd like to point out a thing that you just mentioned which is that you know for instance in vision you can like as you say like v1 like the first part of the visual ventral stream maybe you're sensitive to like um, edges and then later on more like complex curvatures and what these like neural networks provide is you know like a way of visualizing what these features actually look like Mm -hmm. because it might be easy it's like easy enough to like say all right like this particular area is like sensitive to like these like uh, rotating bars or like these edges you know that's easy enough but when you get like further um, in the stream it's like pretty hard to actually visualize what do these more complex features look like yeah and that's where you know having a neural network um, is just a really nice system it's just like a nice te- test bed to like extract representation and say like all right what do these features look like yeah. um, so if you have like a later stage in the brain then you can extract representations from the neural network and say all right what does this 
stage of the neural network represent. Yeah. So that's been pretty fruitful in vision, as you just mentioned. And I think, well, I'm interested in using uh, similar approaches within language. So we don't really know precisely what the language system is, you know, responsive to, like what is most language-like. Mm, yeah. um, we don't know what those features are, what are those properties that would like drive the language system? How does that look like? Yeah. Um, and my hope is that perhaps we can use like these artificial neural networks for language to actually try to uh, provide an answer to that question in the same way that they're, they've been used in, in vision. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's super interesting because I mean, language is so, diverse right I mean like a, sort of a classic example of this is like uh, spoken language versus sign language right and how like if someone is um, you know is deaf and uses uh, sign language you know it's historically very, very unfortunately there's been a lot of like stigma and bias against like oh mm. some sign languages are just miming it's not like real it's just it's just sort of like this pantomime but obviously that's not the case and um, there's been lots of really cool research into you know sign languages as well and and the ways in which they develop and these case studies of like how sign languages emerge when um, a bunch of people who are, are using it come together. Um, and a lot of like the same things that are going on for spoken language are happening for sign language, even though the modality is totally different. And I find that like, again, kind of non-obvious and non-trivial that like we're the human species like evolved to, you know, 99% of the time to speak language and yet we're able to transfer um, that ability to learn like a sign language with this totally different mode and like does that use the same brain regions as spoken language yeah and yeah, yeah 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 sign language and spoken language uses basically the same network um so we can think of the language network as being like a, a mapping between form and meaning and that's the same process that's yeah. taking taking place yeah well yeah that's um, that's yeah just really cool because it's like it's not just that like okay different languages that obviously have different sounds mapping to you know, the, you know, forms map the meaning in different ways from different languages based on sounds, but not just sounds, but like also like all these other like um, configurations of hands and fingers and facial expressions like that can also be a form and mm -hmm. that also maps to meaning. It also mm -hmm. has a hierarchical structure in the same way that uh, spoken language does. And I don't know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very um, fascinating. And yeah, I don't know, it's, it's I don't know, I, I find language just very cool and I don't know it's, it's one of those things that you know does I think really make um, you know humans quite different from you know other species uh, I guess we don't know for sure that other species don't have their own language but as far as we know they don't um, you know all animals I guess do communicate in some way like you know dogs wag their tails and bark and you know bees have their famous bee dance but it, it doesn't seem like as far as we can tell any other species has like the same capability for like um, expressing more complicated uh, meanings mm. uh, in the way that we do and flexibly, but yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you also mentioned hierarchical organization yeah. in one way, and you know, that's another big open question, right? Because we, we do know that we have the system, the language network in the brain that, that does process language, um, but it's still pretty unclear what exactly the hierarchical organization of that system looks like mm, yeah. uh, so that's like another really interesting question like which hierarchies do you need in the brain in order to actually perform these like pretty complex form meaning mappings yeah. um, and as we also already discussed like in vision it's often the case that some of these artificial neural networks replicate the cortical hierarchy but that's not always the case like it it's it there are definitely good studies showing this but there are also like counter studies um, 
and I have another project where we are showing something similar for the auditory domain. Okay. Um, but within language, it's been, you know, it's pretty hard to figure out what the hierarchical organization would look like and if there are any dissociations among the different language regions. Yeah. Um, so maybe for the ones we're not like super similar with, uh, familiar with um, language regions, um, our language regions are mainly in the frontal and temporal um, regions, parts of our brain and left lateralized in most individuals. And then there are like homologous regions in the right hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we have like these different blobs, these different regions that all take part in processing language, but it's pretty unclear whether there's some dissociation among these regions, whether different regions do different computations and mm -hmm. how those computations might look like. Yeah. Which yeah. is, yeah, weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it is, yeah, there's, there's still, I don't know, so much we don't know, I guess. And yeah, like, I, I feel like, in early, very early models of the brain, you kind of like see these very nice maps where like each part is color coded and it's like, okay, this chunk does this, this chunk. Mm. It's like, those are clearly like not mm. correct, right? It's like now we know so much more about the brain, have these like much more powerful tools. Like you mentioned fMRI and like using, being able to like actually gather data from the human brain. And yeah, like the, the some of these language, like the language network is not just like concentrated entirely in like exactly one spot. It's, you know, it's you see a picture, it's more distributed. Yeah. 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 And so, I don't know. Um, I guess like damage to different parts of the brain can can cause language deficits, but it's not always like I guess as straightforward as like oh if you get like an injury right here like we know exactly what's going to happen to you. like it's hard to I guess say that. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, as long as you're like an infant, then you can have damage to pretty much any area, and you will be totally fine. Yeah. But like later on, of course, it's not as as focal as you mentioned. So if you had damage to part X, then. Um, you're not, yeah, it's not as, as easy as you say. There's like a distributed processing, which is probably good for the sake of robustness yeah. of our brains. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Yeah, so I've participated in a couple of fMRI experiments yeah. as a subject, <laughs> and I'll definitely not recommend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I recommend uh, that people uh, sign up for, you know, experiment. You get a free scan of your brain, you get like a cool. GIF, GIF, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, of, of, that shows your brain like in cross sections and stuff, but I don't know, like, yeah, for those who may not be like super familiar with like what fMRI even is, like, can you just like explain, I guess, like what, what exactly are we collecting when you, like, if someone gets scanned it's, like specifically for a language task, let's say, like what is being, what's their experience going to be, what can someone expect if they go and kind of go into a scanner, um, what data do you get from that mm. person, um, how do you like, approach analyzing that data yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so first of all if you uh, participate in an fMRI scan we're gonna make sure that you don't have any metal on you oh, very um, important <laughs> there's a, a large metal um, a magnetic coil um, that you'll be lying within and, and it's like um, strong right like it it's would, very strong it would like rip metal like yes. out of your body yes, potentially exactly. like, it's, it's very strong um, so you're basically in a magnetic field and first of all fMRI is an indirect measure of neural activity. Um, so what we are measuring is um, the bold response, which is um, oxygenated blood, basically. So we're kind of like the assumption here is that, you know, if you have an increase in neural activity, you also have an increase in um, oxygen to that particular uh, region. Um, so what we are measuring is, yeah, it's, it's indirect. Um, but yeah, what we are quantifying is, you know, this like increase in the bold response. And what's important to mention here is that because it's like this indirect measure, then 
it doesn't really mean anything per se. If I just put you in the scanner and then I play like a story for you for like 10 minutes and then I record everything, everything is like relative to something. Yeah, yeah. So the way that we usually analyze fMRI data is using contrasts. Okay. So the way that we would identify the language network would be to present um, a bunch of sentences. Either you can read sentences or you can like listen to these sentences. And then we need something to contrast these sentences with in order to identify where you're processing language yeah. more than anything else. So that control could look like non-words. So basically strings of words that you know don't have any meaning or any syntax. Um, so in that manner, we can you know, contrast the sentences with non-words. And in that sense, we can identify where do you process language. Um, so yeah, everything in FMI is pretty much like this, like, you know, condition of interest against some matched control. Okay, and it's yeah. important to match it to make sure you're like, it's not due to some other thing, like yeah. just, you know, reading or like processing letters. Like yeah. You wanna make sure that like, if you're really caring about, if language is the thing you're trying to question, then you wanna make sure that the control is basically as similar as possible, but only differing in like being language versus not. So yeah, that's why exactly. you use like, you, you're yeah. still reading, you're still looking at letters, Visually, it's basically the same, but it's just non-words mm -hmm. or yeah. real words but jumbled up mm -hmm. or something like that. Exactly. So what is really nice about fMRI is that you know we have a really great coverage, and by that I mean that we can record from pretty much the entire brain at the same time, which is pretty unique for any like recording modality. Yeah. Um, so we usually divide the brain into what these like pixels that we call voxels, just like a three D cube. Uh, so we get a value um, of the bold activity in each single small little cube of your brain, nice. which is really interesting. So you can you know, pretty much visualize what's going on in, in mm -hmm. the entire brain. Of course, like the signal is not equally good at all places in the brain. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's of course also always caveats. Yeah. One of them being that uh, the sampling rate of fMRI is pretty slow. Okay. So we usually sample uh, a new image of the brain every two seconds. Okay. So as, as we know, like as we're speaking now, right, there's a lot of processing going on that's like on millisecond scale. Yeah. And we can't probe that using fMRI, which is unfortunate, but that's what we're left with as, yeah. uh, so, you know, researchers studying a yeah. human uh, specific, yeah. Yeah, I guess like different ways have different uh, pros and cons, right? Mm. And yeah, I guess you have like good spatial coverage, but not great temporal resolution, but... Mm. Um, you know, that's nothing's perfect, I guess. You make do with what you have. Nice. Okay, so then you must get, like, a ton of data as a result, right? Like, I mean, I imagine, like, if you scan someone... I mean, I was in the scanner for, like, two hours, and there must have been a lot of... And these are 3D, high-resolution, you know, lots of voxels. So, like, that's a lot of data, right? Yep. And then how do you, like... How do you even analyze that? Like, how, how do you... I guess there are a lot yeah. of tools and stuff. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's actually, like right before we met, I was like actually trying out a different analysis tool for fMRI. Um, so it's still like something that, you know, I'm actively learning. Yeah. But basically the idea of what you want to do is that you want to fit some kind of function to that bold response that you measured. And we know that there's like a hemodynamic response function that you need to fit to every single voxel. So we're basically fitting like a big linear model for each single pixel of the brain. Okay. Um, and then you get these like estimated responses. And yeah, so as you mentioned, it's, it's a lot of data if you have a couple of hours long uh, recording session and then you have uh, a point for every single pixel in the brain. 
so the first thing that we usually do is to say, all right, we are probably not interested in the entire brain if we're interested in the language network. So first we can take some parcels or some like um, pre-specified anatomical locations and say, all right, within these locations, now I want to use my contrast between sentences and non-words to figure out where uh, are the language responsive regions. So we kind of constrain the spatial coverage in that sense. Nice. Um, and then within those regions, then I can, you know, look at if you read sentence type A, sentence type B, C, then I can try to quantify how the responses were within those regions. Um, and of course I can do the same for other systems in the brain. So now I just mentioned the language network, but say that I was interested in working memory uh, network, then I can also record uh, a contrast between like some hard condition of a spatial memory task and an easier condition, and in the same way isolate uh, particular blobs of your brain that mm. would be in your working memory, multiple demand system as we call it, and then I can like look at what's going on there. So the first step, uh, besides all the like pre-processing, denoising that you have to deal yeah. with, um, would be to figure out, all right, where in the brain do I actually want to take a look? And then you try to like constrain those regions. Cool, very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, I don't know, I, I, you know, as you said, this doesn't work just for language or, you know, as you mm -hmm. said, uh, multiple demand, like visual working memory. I mean, there's, I remember one of the first papers I read, um, like in one of the classes I took like last semester was like about the sort of famous paper by like uh, Nancy Canwisher and others uh, about like the facial, yeah. um, like the face area, fusiform face area, where they basically do the same thing. It was like faces versus sort of jumbled up things that have all the same features as faces, but like not a face, right? They trying to jumble up and putting a bunch of people in the scanner and seeing like where the brain reacts to faces more than it does to non-faces. Um, and then you sort of see this like kind of one area that's exactly respond responding specifically and exclusively to, to faces. Um, yeah, and the paper that you mentioned is actually I think from '97. Yeah, it's like it's like pretty old paper. But what's like super cool is that like last year in, in '21, a paper came out trying to test this face selective region um, in an even more extensive way mm -hmm. because you know back then and like throughout like the decades that passed since like '97, you know you you just can't test every single uh, image, right? Because they, their claim was that we have a region that's pretty selective for faces, but you know somebody could come here and say like, oh, but you know it's equally selective for some other object, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, what's pretty cool again merging the uh, neural network uh, side of things is that yeah, last year this paper came out by um, uh, again a postdoc from Canrushers group where. Um, they basically ran, they fit a model on predicting the responses of that like uh, face selective region. And then they just said, all right, let's look uh, across like millions of images and say, and just quantify whether some of these images are predicted to have high responses. And that was not the case. So it's like a pretty strong test of like, all right, this region is actually pretty selective to hmm. faces. Yeah, so nice, it's, nice. it's really yeah. cool that, you know, we had like these fMRI tools back then and, you know, a lot of good work was done and now we can, yeah, use the computational tools to actually test some yeah. of these hypotheses in a yeah. stronger way. No, yeah, that's, that's super cool. Yeah, so I guess like computational skills are definitely mm -hmm. like a really important, I guess, uh, prereq, maybe not a prereq, but definitely very helpful to have in this Yeah, field. I learned I, to code pretty late, actually. Okay, yeah, actually I'm curious about that. I was a computer science major, oh, so okay. I mean, I, I, I learned to code, well, I wouldn't say I learned to code 
early, but I mean, at least I did it. What do you mean by early? So well, I mean, I took I took like, a computer science class in high school, and then like oh, I, okay. I, I you know I went to my undergrad and did uh, computer science majors. So I don't know. I've been coding for like probably around ten years, but um, more. But in like different like you know not always. Like Python, I think I learned like kind of late compared to like my first language was like Java. And, you know, I, I think like different kinds of uh, computer science or like coding are like helpful in different ways. So, yeah, how did you learn like how to code or when did you decide you like needed to learn how to code? And then how did you like go about learning it? Yeah, that's uh, I was on an exchange semester at uh, Caltech and there the most popular course is uh, Introduction to Computer Science. Oh, nice. And uh, I was like, yeah, this sounds like a great place to learn how to code. So I joined this class of, I don't know, like hundreds of undergraduates. And during the first lecture, like the uh, the instructor asked, oh, so how many of you have coded before? Like everyone, everyone was did. like raising their hands. <laughs> I was Caltech. like, I never, <laughs> I, what is a code interpreter even? Yeah. Um, so that was my first introduction to coding and programming. And what language was that? It was Python. Oh, it was Python. 2.7. Yeah. Um, and I kind of hated it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I cried my way through the midterm. Um, and when I finished that course, I was like, oh, great. Now I'm just going back to my wet lab things and that's yeah. going to be nice. And then I kind of started eventually realizing, you know, like, wow, there's some pretty fascinating things that you can do. Yeah. Um, and then at some point I, I went to a, a talk with who then became my, my advisor, master thesis advisor, um, Lars Hansen, uh, from the technical university in Denmark. And he was like talking about machine learning and I was like, whoa, this is kind of crazy that you can do these things. And yeah. after the lecture, a bunch of people had questions, but I just waited until everyone left and was like, hello, I have no idea how to code or do anything but you know can we talk yeah. and he was like yeah sure we can talk um and we met a week later and i remember like going through his google scholar like reading pretty much uh trying to understand what was going on in this world and yeah i'm, I'm super fortunate like even I, I showed up at his office and clearly did not even know what a matrix was um and yeah he he took me into his group and uh I joined two other students and I think that's the real way I actually learned to code. I think that course I, I, I didn't really learn that much. Uh, but yeah, I was with these like two great students who definitely knew more about programming than me. And uh, we're just working on a project like analyzing EG data, so also neural signals, just um, time resolved. And then I was like, oh, this is pretty fun. You can do some pretty cool things. Yeah. And then I started learning and yeah. The rest is history. The <laughs> rest is history. Yeah, I mean, do you still mostly use Python in your day-to-day? Yeah, -day? I do pretty much all, all Python, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I love Python, I don't know, it's a great language. I mean, some people don't like Python because it's like, I mean, I guess from like a strict, like if you're comparing computer languages only from like just a computer science background. Like it has these, you know, it's like dynamically typed and it's like interpreted, it doesn't have like the sort of like checks and balances that like kind of some other languages have where you have to declare like what type of every like Python variables. Python 3.8 has uh, the option to do oh, it, it which is great. That, I started, nice. just started doing it, yeah, which is great. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like some people like are really into, you know, C because it's, you know, oh, like it's much closer mm. to like assembly language and it's closer to the hardware and Python has too many like abstractions and it's slow and but, like, honestly, none of that really matters. Like the mm. slow speed, well, it's not like, you know, if, if you're worrying about like whether it runs in five milliseconds or 50 milliseconds, like, I don't know, probably 
you're not doing the kind of stuff that we're doing anyway, right? Where it's like this, you know, the, the raw speed is less important than like the ease of like quickly building, mm. like the, the process of building. And Python, I think, just makes it like super easy to like, you know, build cool stuff quickly. And like, especially with like machine learning and data analysis, there's so many existing libraries that you can leverage. You know, there's so much stuff just available on GitHub. There's so much, you know, just like already invested into kind of all these like scientific computing tools like NumPy and SciPy and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, TensorFlow and PyTorch and all. I mean, there's like so much kind of infrastructure already there that, yeah, I don't know, Python just makes it very easy, I think, to, to do these things. And I think like it didn't click for me for a while. Like, I, okay, I did a computer science major and I don't know, I um, like, I, I didn't really find, um, I guess, like a, a passion for like coding. It sounds really bad. Like I could code, but like, it didn't really like I feel like coding wasn't really in my like um, in my veins you know until until a bit later until actually like after I graduated and I was teaching as a, as a computer science teacher for a couple of years and then then I kind of like really started to I got into Python a bit mm. and um, yeah I don't know I just started to see all the things you can do with it how it like if you can dream it you can kind of you can probably build it you know and it just opens up a lot of opportunities um, and you know whatever you're interested in whether it's the brain or language or whatever like coding is sort of a way to get tackle there. the questions and get there yeah yeah I agree but I think that shift happened to me like pretty recently because you know when you're like new to coding the, the your main objective is just to like do it and like yeah. actually learn how to build the frameworks and like until yeah. a few years ago that was my main objective when I was coding it was yeah. you know like how can I even do this yeah right and like only as a relatively recently now the objective is like all right i want to investigate this one thing how can i efficiently build this system so it like works and it's robust and like relatively fast yeah. but now like the yeah the sh there's definitely a shift um so it also sounds like you actually started enjoying the coding more when it yeah. came to all right there's something that i want to do with this tool. Yeah. yeah yeah definitely definitely yeah because i mean i didn't even have much experience with like Kind of all the data science applications of, of coding like I, I think you know the way it's taught in a lot of universities is you know from a somewhat theoretical lens and like i think a lot of these courses have been around for a while so there's these sort of like everyone takes you know intro programming everyone takes data structures and algorithms so you learn like what a binary tree is and you learn what a hash table is and like kind of these very foundational concepts which are super important and like those classes are definitely doing really valuable stuff but like i never took a class in my undergrad where it was like you know take in a big CSV file that has like tons of different, you know, columns of data, you know, normalize it, you know, get rid of sort of messy, noisy data, you know, find, do like some descriptive statistics and data visualization and then like fit some, like I never actually took a class that involved that. Maybe that's my fault that I didn't like search that out. Um, but actually it was like kind of during the pandemic, like when very early on, like April, 2020 or something, I just like had some more free time. So I started to like look into, look into that and um, yeah, just like take on some like smaller projects and I realized like, wow, I can like, whatever I'm interested in, like I can actually can make it, it. You can build it. Yeah. It was like such a cool, cool and um, overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so. that you can do pretty much anything, yeah. which is very overwhelming. You know, when I sit down to like write a framework, if I start to like think too much about it, I'm just like, whoa, I could, you know, there's too many possibilities. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's of course all also true for like being at MIT, right? There's like a million things that you could be doing every single moment, but you still have to like take that pick. And if you think too hard about it, I yeah, I, yeah. Get, I get 
quite overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to, like, I think, have, take it piece by piece. I think part of learning is, like, knowing what is, like, the right size that, to bite off that, like, you can chew. And mm. I don't know. I mean, I think back to, like, when I was teaching and, like, how students would come in with, like, literal, literally no background in coding, like, never have written code before. And so, of course, the first thing you do is just, like, hello world, you know, and you're just, like, okay, how to print something, like, the most basic thing you can possibly do. And then, like, you know, an if statement, like, a single if statement, like, you know, if this... If I is less than 10, print hello. Like, if I is greater than 10, print goodbye. Or, like, I don't know, something like that. And if, like, you're like, what can I do with this? You know, this feels kind of boring. But it's, like, you you build up on that. And, like, you know, you take these, I guess, like, primitives for, you know, to use a computer science analogy. And, like, um, you know, the, these little building blocks. And then you build up to, like, really, really abstract, complicated things. Um, which is kind of, and, like, you know, the students that I had, like, within... A year like they were working on projects that involved like um like simulating the solar system with like like a sort of a physics simulation or like encryption and like these kind of like oh, all I'm these different sure. like, <laughs> but yeah no, it was fun no i just kind of i just kind of like borrowed some of the like uh, curricula and uh, like problem sets from mm. like my undergrad like princeton computer science classes because they make they, it's all available online good, so yeah. yeah no it's like it's cool how much progress you can make in like a short amount of time and yeah i don't know i i definitely like try to tell people like if you're not sure what you want to do like learn how to code because like it's not going to hurt you <laughs> like and it's only going to make you know whatever you you, you do want to do like more possible yeah but it's also an interesting question how much we are actually going to be doing the coding in even a few years yeah. because for instance i i recently installed a github copilot which oh, is like okay. you know um which is this big uh again neural network that has been trained on i think the entire of github so basically just a bunch of code and you can have it as like a, a co-pilot what you call it so it basically can predict what your next line of code will be nice and um it's pretty good i have to say it's, it's pretty good so now i'm like wow i'm i'm still like kind of writing code but way less than i was like a few months yeah. ago yeah and you know that works pretty well and now i'm like you know what in like a few years i I'm not sure that we will actually be writing that much yeah, code. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. So it's basically like a, it's essentially a language model that's trained yeah. on Yeah, exactly. Code, on code, yeah. And which is funny because like well, code yeah. and language are different things, right? And like, it's not like, I think there's evidence that the brain doesn't, like even someone who's an experienced coder, it's not that their language network is necessarily being activated when they're coding or when they're reading code. That's um, true, yeah. Yet a language model with basically the same architecture that you use to, you know, like, train on human language if you just apply the same thing to a huge amount like oh, all of all of github or whatever uh i guess can still sort of complete things mm. in reasonable ways but just again kind of like not obvious that that would work um yeah and, and i mean part of it is because you know when we say language models and language networks um the artificial ones then they're obviously way more than the language network in the brain because the language network in the brain is you know it's not doing all these like crazy problem solving tasks right it's literally um, mapping between form and meaning while you know these computational language models they do way more than that um, so they just have this like substrate to actually uh, learn these like pretty complex uh, patterns uh, statistical patterns in mm. data which allows them to yeah predict code yeah so, so is it I mean I guess what someone might say about that is like are they just memorizing it like is it just you know github is so big like let's say you you start writing a function and you put a comment and you say like you know calculate the mean of a list or something like 
I'm sure that function has already been written by someone on GitHub. So is it yeah. just like memorizing these chunks and spitting yeah. them back out? Or it, is it actually kind of creatively combining things? I mean, that's a, that's a big question, right? <laughs> Whether uh, these models actually have like some degree of, uh, you know, real generalization and compositionality, which does not really seem to be the case. So yeah, as you say, it seems like a lot of memorization is basically like a huge lookup table um, where you can just basically predict based on you've seen so much training data and there are very these transformer models are very very efficient at making use of everything they've seen yeah. uh, which has made them crazy powerful and and why we're using them all the time so yeah i guess that's a harder question whether yeah. they actually right, um yeah. yeah what's that analogy with the, the chinese room oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. do you want to just explain that analogy or I don't know if I remember it. To... Yeah, it's it's basically if you have a person in a room, I believe, and you want to translate a text, I think that it's setting is something like this. Yeah. And basically if the person in the room like receives some kind of text and then, you know, outputs the text in say a different language, um, then if he's just in the room and has like the biggest dictionary in the world, right? A biggest lookup table and can pretty much pretend that he's like, he, she, um, they're like translating this text, then, you know, is that generalization? Is that understanding? If yeah. you can pretend that you did it, like where is right. the actual knowledge? Is it in the lookup table? Is it in the person doing this task yeah, is it yeah. in the room itself you know it's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, so like an external observer basically from their point of view they just it like, looks like put a document perfect, in yeah. and then out comes this perfectly translated exactly. document or whatever but maybe the person inside doesn't speak either of those languages no. and is just like following rules yeah and i guess yeah that's essentially what some of these models maybe do. could be doing yeah. yeah i think there was like some recent like twitter thread or something oh. about people talking about like are language models slightly <laughs> conscious or something like that yeah. there's this whole like i i didn't really follow it i just think i like briefly saw it or something uh i, I don't even know if we're at the point where we're ready to ask those questions yet you know like are what does it mean to say like is this model conscious but yeah i mean it seems like it's kind of getting at the same thing right like, yeah. Yeah, yeah if yeah, something exactly. is just sort of doing these computations um we as humans like to ascribe you know sentience mm. to, to things it's kind of it's hard not to but does that and mean? especially for the networks that do language right yeah. because as as we talked about before like language is what you know makes us like you know relate to each other yeah. well like if you have a big like vision network like people didn't have jokes about these networks being conscious i think i yeah, think the part yeah. that's a system can produce something that feels so real to us yeah. basically like text or speech is like a big factor right and that's why all these jokes came up with like oh matrix multiplication is consciousness <laughs> yeah, yeah, which yeah. like is what's yeah. going on in these yeah. models yeah. um yeah because yeah, yeah. i mean i guess like other species have like vision too or like even better vision like you know an owl or mm. an eagle like has probably uh you know arguably better sight than we do and mm. has a very advanced visual cortex probably but um yeah, like, they don't have the language network that we have, as far as we know. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's hard not to. But, okay, so you brought up a point that I think is very interesting about, like, you know, the purpose of language, right? Like, we use it, obviously, we use it to communicate. We use it to, you know, express ideas, We to, to take, you know, meanings from inside our mind and express them in a way that other people can understand. Um, so, yeah, I mean... It's hard to exactly say what is like the purpose of language, but I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, are people, you know, people use it for, you know, work, people use it for teaching, people use it for just socializing, for gossiping, for this and that. Like, do you have thoughts about like, I guess, what, 
why I guess humans have language, maybe from an evolutionary point of view, or, you know, um, yeah, like why was language such an important, I guess, adaptation for, for us as a species? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been a lot of theorizing <laughs> in this field, yeah. first of all, um, but it seems to be that there's, uh, there's evidence showing that language has evolved as a means of communication. And I think part of the evidence that I personally like is that if you look at the non-human primate brain, then there are regions that are like anatomically in kind of close areas to what where the language network falls in the human brain that um, is processing, you know, these like social uh, signals. So that I think is kind of like a nice like suggestion that, you know, language might have evolved with these like communicative pressures. Um, But yeah, it's it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it shouldn't be controversial, right? Like, okay, language evolved to communicate. Like, yeah, like that seems right. But I guess that's not fully accepted. Yeah, because like the alternative, which like, as you're saying, is that language evolved for complex thought. Um, I think that's the other end of the the debate. Oh, that that you need language to enable. To enable, yeah, Yeah. exactly. So there are people who think that that was sort of the... Yeah, which does not seem to be the case. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, it's, it's, it's interesting how, like, I don't know, I feel like when we study language, like, especially, you know, in in our field, right, like, we we see language in this, like, very data-oriented way, like, we have, like, a big file with, like, one sentence per line, you know, like, all this stuff, Mm. but, like, if you actually go out and, like, look at the way people are talking, it's, like, you know, so diverse and flexible, and, like, people don't necessarily speak in, like, full sentences, and we'll just kind of, like, you know, uh, like, backtrack, and, like, do all these sorts of different Mm. things, and language can be kind of uh, very messy and, and stuff, but like we have no trouble communicating. Like you're getting, you're still getting the information across. Right. Like ultimately, language, like the unit of language, is not like sentences, right, or these kind of like grammatical abstractions. It's it's really about like I guess the information that you're mm. conveying and the fact that you're able to 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 communicate with mm. people. Um, and I think like this is something that exactly what you mentioned. Now that language is so messy, it's so robust. It like we can do so many things with language. Like sometimes, you know, when you get really tired of your own science and your own projects, I'm like, oh no, but I'm not even taking any of this into account. How yeah. can I solve anything, right? Yeah. Um, and you're like, yeah, language is so much and how with this like one instantiation of ex- an experimental paradigm, as you say, we present one sentence at a time or we do yeah. like maybe two, maybe three, like some other um, design, like how can we even possibly understand and probe everything that language is um Mm. so that's like when i get very pessimistic about things but on the other hand like you have to set up controlled experiments right so you can't just solve everything at once even though (laughs) yeah (laughs) that'd be nice yeah you like yeah you have to like make just i guess like you know one hypothesis and it may not be like the most earth-shattering thing Mm. but it's progress you know it's one step forward yeah yeah yeah, yeah, okay, so I guess one, one thing I might want to ask you is, like, what advice do you have to, like, people aspiring to maybe become PhD students or, like, you know, go to grad school? Like, I don't really know who's listening to this right now, but I assume at least some maybe at least contemplating uh, grad school and stuff. Like, I don't know, what, what, would, what are some things that you've found? It doesn't have to be specifically about, like, your research or about language, but just, like, in general, how do you, like, how do you approach sort of, I guess, like, a he- sort of what you describe, like, a healthy way of, like, okay, maybe you have pessimistic moments where you're like, oh, how can I even, like, actually solve this whole really hard question? Like, how do you, I guess, go forward and, like, you know, keep yourself on track, keep yourself motivated, um, and, yeah, just, like, be successful in graduate school? Yeah, I think two main things. One thing is just having good people around you. I think that's the primary one. Just have, yeah, always pick based on the 
the people and not the particular project because interests will change yeah. and I've experienced this myself I think a lot of people have but you know good people often yeah. <laughs> most likely don't change right so I think having good people around you is the most important thing and I think the other thing that um, one really has to like um, in like while being in grad school and actually enjoying the process is kind of this like love for like long-term projects and mm -hmm. things that just like extend and like go on for like several years yeah. um and i know that people just have different preferences um i personally had a i had my own small uh company when i was um like 19 20 or something where i did freelance work mm -hmm. and that cycle was like very short you know you do a project and a couple of weeks later you do something else And I personally just didn't like it. Um, I love like the aspect of science where, you know, you learn something and then you build upon it and you remember something like a few years later that was you read like at some point. Mm -hmm. And I really do enjoy that part of science that makes me kind of very calm mm -hmm. um, in the process because otherwise it's very easy to get frustrated yeah. and things don't move very quickly and, you know, things don't work out. And something that you thought was very simple might take you a year to set up. Um, and yeah, just to give an example of that, um, I started working with, with my advisor, uh, Ev, um, for the first time back in 2018. And now I think like this week or like last week is my like first, first authored paper with her coming out. Right. So it just, everything just takes time. So I yeah. think like an ability to like that process and really just, you know, yeah really accept that yeah. I think that's very important to actually enjoy it yeah yeah I think that's really good advice because I think like when we when people like grow up in school like learning about science they're often presented as like oh here's like a famous scientist like here's Isaac Newton or something you know and it's like Isaac Newton discovered gravity and like calculus or whatever and it's just like okay boom you, you think of science as being like one famous brilliant person who just like has amazing ideas works by themselves and just like changes the field forever mm -hmm. you know and like in reality maybe that happens sometimes but like it's never one person doing right it's all so much of it is about collaboration so much of, yeah. of it is about kind Anything. of having like working in a group and being patient and like waiting for results and like bouncing ideas back and forth and iterating right and like you work on something it maybe doesn't work out but you refine your hypothesis you gather more data you whatever and like uh, like really in, in i think the modern scientific setting like you never really see um like one single person Right. It's always the team efforts. Always, and, yeah, yeah, always. And, yeah. yeah, and I think, like, besides what you just mentioned, you just need to be, like, yeah, stubborn, patient, and also optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you like, not easily discouraged. Um, I think, like, I'm usually in a pretty, pretty good mood. You know, you really just need to, like, sometimes look at a project that you've been working on, like, super hard for, like, months and months, and it just doesn't work out, and you just have to, like, accept it and be like, all right, like, well, on to the next thing, and, you know, that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. Um And yeah, it's it's frustrating at times, but you know, yeah. And then of course, like lastly, you you need like some kind of urge and like passion to discover new things and just to, like drive things forward in one sense or the other. Um, yeah, I think that's like the core core driver of like what I'm doing. As as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, I always knew that I wanted to do research because it feels so great to like push something forward where like no one has been doing that before yeah and just that feeling i think is i couldn't have a job where i wasn't doing that yeah. so i yeah. think that like yeah love for that is is very important too yeah yeah and staying positive and yeah just you know 
being able to accept that some weeks will be harder than others and some weeks will you'll have maybe some great discovery or some experiment goes really well and some weeks will be frustrating and you know yeah. that's that's okay and that's some part of the process some weeks you're there in your office like every single <laughs> hour of the day like saturday sunday monday yeah. through friday and that's just yeah. But you've embraced the lifestyle, I guess. I, I really have, like, <laughs> the Cambridge uh, MIT lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but you, I'm sure you do stuff outside of academia, too, to keep sane and what? happy. <laughs> <laughs> you do. <laughs> yeah. So, what, I mean, like, okay, let's say you're just, like, you cannot work anymore. Like, what do you, like, if you just want to, like, take your mind off of work, what do you do? Sports. Sports? Yeah. Okay. What Always sports. sports. Do you, what sports do you do? Um, I'm not very picky. Uh, I run, I go to the gym, I swim, I started rowing last semester which is a very cambridge oh, thing nice. to do as well yeah i also Go noticed some rollerblades in your office yeah. that um, <laughs> i roll up blades, <laughs> I have tennis rackets you know pretty much anything i'm not i'm not a big yeah, yeah. i love all the sports nice, um nice. let's see yeah and as the days here start to get longer and you know it's almost 5 p.m and it's still sunlight outside it's amazing you know like it's gonna get today was super warm i'm excited yeah. for like being able to actually, you know, do more outside. So, yeah, pull out the rollerblades, yeah. There's not just, like, slush and ice on the ground, on, you know. Yeah. Um, cool, cool. Well, I can't really think of a better place to end it. You've been very generous with your time, and I've had a really interesting and fascinating conversation. And uh, there's still a lot of questions I want to ask you, but maybe we'll have to do a part two or something at some point. Uh, but, yeah, Greta, thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Amazing. Thanks. Thanks.